finally, from here in London, under the heading is nobody safe anymore, a royal ruckus has started over the man who had an audience with Queen Elizabeth, uninvited and unannounced, in the Queen's bedroom in the middle of the night. The man had cut himself on a broken window and left bloodstains on the Queen's bed. Yesterday's intruder was able to get through an elaborate system of electronic alarms as well as past palace guards and police. The man was identified as 30-year-old Michael Fagan. A police investigation indicates that Fagan climbed over a fence into the 51-acre palace grounds during the night. He then reportedly climbed a drain pipe and entered the royal quarters through a window. And made his way to the Queen's private bedroom on the first floor. For 10 minutes, he sat talking six feet away from the Queen. Then he asked her for a cigarette. According to his mother, he spoke of a girlfriend called Elizabeth living in SW1. The incident has shocked Britain and resulted in a Scotland Yard investigation of royal security. Mrs Thatcher made an urgent return to the House of Commons today ahead of a statement from the Home Secretary. The House will admire the calm way in which Her Majesty responded to what occurred. The Queen has carried on performing her duties seemingly unperturbed despite the unprecedented and severe level of threat that the intruder posed. The incident left royal commentators asking two questions. How on earth did he get in? And what did they talk about? Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this show will follow the fourth season of the Netflix original series The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode five of season four, titled Fagan. It's 1982. And while Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher is enjoying renewed popularity due to the success of her Falklands military campaign, ordinary people are suffering under her economic policies at home. One such person is Michael Fagan, who decides to break into Buckingham Palace to ask Queen Elizabeth to step in and help people like himself. Elizabeth is left feeling more remote from her subjects than ever. A security stepped up and her concerns over the impact of Thatcher's policies are ignored as the Prime Minister basks in the glory of winning the Falklands War. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode 5 yet, I suggest you do it now or at least very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from director Paul Whittington. It's both intimate and epic at the same time, and I think that's what this show does brilliantly. It it kind of makes the intimate epic and the epic intimate. We'll also hear from the Crown's royal protocol expert, Major David Rankin-Hunt. All those little details which I think just are so important... Mm. I felt it was my job to try and minimise the opportunities for people, the anoraks out there, (laughs) to uh, find something to criticise. But first, I spoke with Jonathan Wilson, who co-wrote episode five with show creator Peter Morgan. And I asked Jonathan what it was that drew him to collaborate with Peter on this episode. 
When I came on board, Peter had already written the outlines for the whole series. So I'd read them and what Peter had latched onto was this idea of an ordinary person going into the Queen's bedroom and explaining what it's like to be him at that time. I think there was a quote from Fagan. I just wanted her to know what it's like to be me and to to be a person struggling to make ends meet. It's just such an interesting idea and so much of The Crown is about what happens in, in rooms, conversations we can never know about. And this is a particularly unusual conversation in a room that we can never know about. The joy of speculating on what that was mm-hmm. is always great. But just, you know, the whole world of 1982 and Thatcher's Britain and the ins and outs of the welfare state at the time and mm-hmm. Fagan's struggles with engaging with that machine. And then the Falklands War as well is bubbling away in the background. And Yeah, yeah, and very and much driving. I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of his frustrations, why he feels the need to go over the wall and into the palace. The interesting thing about the Falklands, the invasion of the islands themselves was a kind of diversionary tactic by Galtieri and the Junta to take focus away from a terrible economic situation there, to kind of drive up some nationalistic fervour and take away from their own feelings. But it became that for Thatcher, and in the end, that distracted from, again, a pretty dire economic situation. There'd been a recession in 80, 81. Unemployment, obviously, soaring, three million at that time. It all plays into that, the Falklands, and Fagan's frustration that this is distracting people from what is a really dire situation at home, and he sees this. It says here you're currently unemployed. What do you do normally? I'm a painter decorator, but there's not a lot of work around recently. Perhaps because instead of investing in new homes which I could then paint and decorate, Devil Woman here is spending it all on a completely unnecessary war. Well, I have to tell you that I fully support the war. Do you know what it costs? I know precisely. The government has published the figures. Why would you spend over three billion pounds on a war against total strangers rather than looking after your own family? It's one of the very few episodes that majority of it is not based within that world of the Mm. crown very much a lot of it is based within Fagan's world to give us a real indication and a real insight into where he is and how he's struggling and what he has to go through and what he's faced with was that a lovely opportunity to create something a little bit different for this episode? Oh yeah completely I mean it is such such a different world you do feel always these two worlds are pointed at each other and even those shots of Fagan going past Buckingham Palace the on bus, the bus yeah. you feel like this is a, a bullet pointed at Buckingham Palace that he's pulling in that direction it's almost like the Prince and the Pauper or something it's these two completely different contrasting worlds some brilliant cuts Paul has from the job centre to the garden party mm-hmm. and it's a joy to see it come to life but <laughs> yeah. um, we had to really delve into that world. We spoke to people who had worked in areas of housing benefits and things like that, and just what it was like to navigate that system. Application for single payment to cover home improvements. Yep. Can you give me a little more information? Uh, OK, my wife has left me. All right. I went to see social services to mediate because I want my kids to spend time with me. All right. But they've seen the flat and said it needs improving. There's water damage. Want to fix it? You're not the primary tenant. My wife's the primary tenant, but she's left. I just explained. You'd have to be the primary tenant at that address before we could even consider paying for the damages. 
Have you tried talking to the council? No, they told me speak to you. There's a lot of loneliness in this episode from Fagan. I think Elizabeth is slightly feeling it too. This idea of security reviews and that she's being kept away from the people or fears. Mm-hmm. She talks about Buckingham Palace being like a prison and there's something nice about these two people who feel a bit lonely coming together. And then obviously a lot of the episode from Elizabeth's perspective is about understanding or coming to a new realisation about Thatcher and her growing power and what that might represent. We mentioned about the kind of relationship between Elizabeth and Thatcher and this victory parade and this power struggle that we're seeing unfold as well in front of our eyes. Yeah, Uh, I mean, it was a big thing at the time that she took the salute Thatcher at the victory parade and that the royals weren't invited. What's it like working with Peter on this and how does that work? On this particular episode, he'd written the outline. I did a first pass, it then goes back to him. He makes it a lot better, gives it back to me with notes and then I do another pass. It goes, again, goes back to him and he makes it better again. Um, I think you're being a little bit hard yeah. on yourself here. <laughs> but um, he's great and he's so you know generous in terms of he always wants new ideas and he's such an incredible writer. And the characters in The Crown are... They're difficult to know. They're all hidden behind this wall or or wear a kind of shell, a title. You get these scenes come through and, and it's just these incredible insights into them. So that's what you're striving towards. You're trying to get under the skin and mm. understand them better and, and tie it into bigger questions of the constitution and the country and where the country is at that time. And so obviously this is a dramatisation, but you are totally rooted in a real event here. Mm. Where's the line between staying true to the research of what really happened with the break-in and writing a drama? You know, it was such a tricky thing with the break-ins because it's all, it's also implausible in some way. (laughs) How we go in and and you think... uh, Do you scratch your head to do a bit going, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you read it again and again and, you know, it was something we all struggled with. Like, is this... Are people just going to go, come on? But it's real, you know, and it's one of those examples where truth is stranger than fiction. (laughs) It has kind of changed at various points. What has account had changed of how he got in? Details of what happened when he got there. And there were times where he said one time he went into the stamp room, which is on the ground floor, but most other times he said he shimmied up a drain pipe and climbed through a window. We had to piece a lot of the first break-in together from what was known about the second, which is the one where he was actually captured, obviously. The first one, he was spotted by a maid and there was a kind of investigation but they weren't really sure she hadn't been seeing things I think was one of the researchers found the police report in the National Archives and do you get a bit more detail there he said that he basically followed the same route each time so you're putting together details and obviously he talks about the bottle of wine pushing the cork in and it was like valued at six pounds we know little details like that that this was because that was ultimately what he was prosecuted for because trespassing wasn't a crime um, at that time so they had to prosecute him for something so the only crime was the theft of a six pound bottle of wine or half (laughs) half of a six pound bottle of wine not even the full bottle did he say how long it took him from when he got in to ending up in her bedroom because it's a massive place. He wasn't on some kind of furtive mission. Yeah. As we show, you know, he kind of yeah. wandered around. He he says he went into the throne room, had a little seat in the throne. Right. He just wandered around unchallenged and he, I think he wandered around for quite a while. So when you think about that, that he's not, you Yeah, know, he doesn't know exactly where he's got to get to. He just happens upon uh, and wow. I guess maybe you just start following, oh, this corridor looks nicer, so that's probably, I'll go down this one. And <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's some reason why you end up outside the Queen's bedroom because it gets a bit grander. But yeah, I mean, it was all chance seemingly. 
The evidence suggests he, uh, we're assuming it was a he, got in over the railings near to the ambassador's entrance, up a drain pipe, and in through a window to the master of the household's office. From there, he went down the east gallery, along the cross gallery, through the picture gallery, to the gift room, where he drank a bottle of wine. What? Uh, a vache, Johannesburg Riesling. Valued at six pounds. In this episode, we not only get to experience Michael Fagan's world, but the contrasting environment of the royals from the pomp and ceremony of the Queen's birthday parade and garden party to the corridors and back rooms of Buckingham Palace inhabited by the royals and their staff. As we've heard many times on The Crown, the official podcast, getting the details right is very important on the show. So I sat down with Major David Rankin-Hunt, whose unique insight into the royal world has been invaluable since season one. I asked David about his role on the show. Well, my official title is protocol consultant rather than historical consultant, but inevitably the role cuts across many different aspects from history to protocol to even etiquette. I get involved in all sorts of things. So um, jack of all trades, uh, master of none. (laughs) (laughs) You undersell your position because it's been wonderful to hear. Over the two seasons from speaking to so many people involved, both in front of the camera and behind the importance of what you do, how did you first come to be involved with the crime? Well, it was quite funny. I, I had literally a month previously just retired from the royal household and I was sitting at home and the phone rang and a week later I went to Elstree and that's how it all started. It was a wonderful new opportunity. How um, long had you worked for the... Uh... 33 years at the wow. palace. And prior to that, I was in the army and I was in a regiment that did, amongst other things, of course, in addition to operational work, public duties at the palace. And I suppose it was a combination of my experience in the army, my experience in the palace, plus my experience as a herald, because one of my responsibilities, I was uh, secretary of the working group set up to organise the Queen's funeral. And also a certain event that follows that seemed to make me suitable to become an advisor. For people who are listening, can you explain what a herald is or the job of a herald? Yes, well, there are two types of herald. The heralds in ordinary who are responsible for designing coats of arms and doing genealogical research into your family tree. And then the heralds extraordinary who have other jobs. They're appointed because of expertise in a particular field. And we all have our little specialities. In my case, I advise on military heraldry. So I regulate badges, colours, guidons and standards for the army and state ceremonial. So ceremonially, we turn out for the state opening of parliament wearing our funny outfits. (laughs) Uh, You may have seen a photograph of the tabard and and knee breeches and all that stuff. And also the garter service, procession of the Knights of the Garter, and things like the Thanksgiving service for Jubilees. So there's a sort of ceremonial attached Mm. to it. And within the palace, what was your role there? I started off in the Lord Chamberlain's office, which is the department responsible for ceremonial state visits of heads of state, investitures when people get their MBs, OBs, garden parties, royal funerals, swan-upping. Not, not, um, not familiar with swan-upping. Well, I, I won't go into it, it's so complicated. <laughs> and a whole range of other things. And I did that for eight years. I was the registrar 
And then the Royal Collection, which was always part of the Lord Chamberlain's office, became a department in its own right. And so I moved from the Lord Chamberlain's office to the Royal Collection, which is the Queen's Art Collection. And I was the person, really, that kept the Royal Collection show on the road. So it was exhibitions, staff, all sorts of jobs. And I did that for 20 years. So in total, it was 33. When you get the job on this production, what was your expectation of what was going to be asked of you? I thought that my main involvement would be to go through scripts and, uh, you know, make suggestions and so on, and then occasionally go on set. But as it turned out, I was on set for probably sort of 70% of the time. Wow. Did you enjoy that? Which I loved. (laughs) Uh, I loved because the best part, of course, was meeting all the people. And I felt very privileged to meet some very talented, very able, very charming people of all ages. Obviously, on a film set, predominantly they're fairly young. And I think, you know, as you get a bit older, it's rather nice to work with younger people because you learn so much from them, not least what's going on in the world, the modern world. And having worked in an environment that is perhaps quite sort of restricted in that regard, it was nice to be introduced to the the real world. I don't mean that in a disparaging way of the royal household, but obviously it's an institution that is perhaps a tiny bit old-fashioned in some ways. So it was a great privilege to learn so much from all these people. How was it for you to see this kind of dramatisation of a world that you were part of? Yes. Well, as I said to Claire and and later Olivia, sometimes I had to pinch myself that they weren't the real person because (laughs) they were so good at the mannerisms. And I'd had a session with all the actors beforehand giving my view on, you know, you may wish to make note of the following. And, of course, on top of that, you had the, the props. I mean, I was just absolutely bowled over. I mean, the, the how on earth these people managed to produce such excellent work. I mean, it, you really did feel you were in the palace. I love that coming from you, who spent so much time there. Yeah. That's and, extraordinary. And I was able to say, in terms of props, tell them about dispatch boxes and wicker baskets and season calendars, all those little mm-hmm. things that add authenticity and realism to the production so that when you're in the private secretary's office, you've got a sofa chair and you've got um, certain things on his desk which he would have had and what sort of telephone and all those little details which I think just are so important. Mm. I felt it was my job to try and minimise the opportunities for people, the anoraks out there, (laughs) to uh, find something to criticise. What for you has been the biggest challenge working on the show? When they were filming a take... You couldn't for a moment just read your book or or make a telephone call. It was constantly being attentive to make sure that every time they did something, they were as good as the last time. So when the private secretary was doing a neck bow, the next time he did it, it was equally smart. And for the actors who were playing private secretaries, I would say, well, Colonel so-and-so had been in the army, therefore you've got to be very particular about Mm. looking military all the time. It was being attentive and Mm. and just not letting them down because if I wasn't paying attention and something slipped through, I mean, I can think of plenty of examples of things that um, one needed to sort of pick up 
Uh, I've got a whole list of them. But, Go on, um, name me some. Well, at garden parties, for instance, umbrellas are always tightly furled, but props were asked to produce an umbrella, so they'd produce an umbrella or lots of umbrellas, and some of them were, do you know what I mean by Mr yeah. Magoo umbrellas? You know, ones that go like Charlie Chaplin's oh, umbrella. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and in the household, you don't have an umbrella like that. You always have a very tightly furled... It's it's almost a badge of office. So we'd go around, go around furling the umbrellas very tightly. And also, when it rains, you don't open your umbrella. If you're on duty at the garden party, you get wet. You don't unfurl your umbrella. It's a badge of office. It sounds ridiculous, but it's just wow. one of those things yeah. that you don't do. So um, I was always keeping an eye on that sort of thing. I remember one occasion we had an investiture and the, the chap right at the front, who was an essay, was wearing a household cavalry uniform and he was looking like a sack of potatoes <laughs> standing there. And I thought, well, this is, looks awful. So I mentioned it to the director, who then said, well, get rid of him, get rid of him. So he was moved to the back somewhere. He gave me dirty looks the rest of the day. You know, his one opportunity to shine and he'd been shifted to the back. Serves him right for slouching. And they said, well, who's the best one to have? So there was one very tall, smart-looking essay. So he was put to the front and looked more realistic. Also, pocket flaps. The Prince of Wales almost invariably has his flaps in his pocket yeah. tucked in. It's a sort of military thing. Yeah. So I was always going around stuffing flaps back into pockets. <laughs> Again, the man in the street wouldn't necessarily yeah. know it, but uh, as a lot of my old colleagues watched the crown, they would um, pick those things up. Yeah. Being part of that, that world for so long, have you had discussions with people that you worked with and what they think about it? Yes, and they've yes. Watched it and I've had very many unsolicited comments from people saying, oh, we've been watching The Crown, isn't it marvellous? We're really enjoying it. And from some pretty senior people in the palace and a lot of other colleagues of mine have watched it and made favourable comments. I think that reflects well on the production mm. because no skin off their nose to say, well, actually, you know, it's not very good, is it? But on the contrary, they've always been very complimentary and for people to want to watch it must mean we've got it right. Mm. There's a kind of heightened emotion with this season as well obviously because of the Diana site and so it's I found it an incredibly emotional experience watching this season. Yeah, It must have been quite difficult for you to watch having been part of well, you know, particularly that. at the time of her death, I mean, it was uh, it was a very difficult time to be in the household because there was a lot of uncertainty about how things were going to develop. And the lead up to that and the, the sad business of the, the marriage breakdown, I think she played the part beautifully and um, with great sensitivity. Mm. And, of course, what was uncanny is or was her resemblance she was, she was quite amazing. There was no question when you saw on set that who she was. Mm. That silhouette again, isn't mm. it? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I was talking yesterday to Paul, one of the directors, about how wonderful the tone is within the episodes. Like, for example, when Thatcher curtsies. <laughs> 
sweet. I can't l- not laugh when I when I think about it because I think Gillian just she was almost um, on the floor, wasn't abs- she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so great. Yeah. it's a very light comedic yes. moment, yeah. but based on reality. In that yes. she, yeah, she did. She did. Um, <laughs> she really did curtsy. You know. Um, down to the floor. Yeah, no, no, almost literally. That's something I do remember. And uh, yes, you're quite right. The, the, the balance between providing a bit of humour, but at the same time it being a serious matter, because mm. I don't think you would necessarily burst out laughing, but you you might you might think, oh God, look at that. <laughs> It is a national embarrassment that the Queen of the United Kingdom should be subjected to troublemakers and malcontents who feel at liberty to resort to violence. Oh, but he wasn't violent. In fact, the only person Mr. Fagan hurt in the course of his break-in was himself. And while he may be a troubled soul, I don't think he's entirely to blame for his troubles being a victim of unemployment, which is now more than twice what it was when you came into office just three years ago. If unemployment is temporarily high, ma'am, then it is a necessary side effect of the medicine we are administering to the British economy. Shouldn't we be careful that this medicine, like some dreadful chemotherapy, doesn't kill the very patient it is intended to heal? If people like Mr. Fagan are struggling, do we not have a collective duty to help them? What of our moral economy? As we heard from Jonathan Wilson earlier on in this podcast, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's policies were having radical effects on British society in 1982. This episode of The Crown explores this idea through the experience of Michael Fagan. And I asked the episode's director, Paul Whittington, about this. It's an intimate story, I think, when Peter first talked about using Fagan as the personification of Thatcher's Britain and what that Thatcherite economic experiment cost to great swathes of society, to the working class in this country. It's brilliant to distill that into the experiences of one man, into a very intimate story that speaks universally Mm -hmm. about the experience of millions. It's both intimate and epic at the same time. And I think that's what this show does brilliantly. It it kind of makes the intimate epic and the epic intimate. And it certainly did feel like that with Fagin, that, okay, we're telling a very, very personal story here and concentrate on that and get the truth and make that feel authentic and real and truthful. And then hopefully the rest will take care of itself. We don't need to make the big political soapbox statement let's be with this guy and let's care about him and let's understand what's going on in his life and then the rest will follow. And part of that was done out of context with the crime, with lots of the episodes set in his world rather than that of the royals. Mm. And so it was important to really show his world and his environment really. And I think so. I think to do it properly and I think it is quite unique in terms of Crown episodes as to how much time, screen time, we spend away from the palace or Downing Street. Mm. And we talk a lot about Fagin world. Okay, we're in Fagin world now, meaning, I guess, kind of the real world in a way, not the rarefied world of the palace. And to commit to that and to go, yeah, we are going to spend this time here because in order for us to engage, you know, to understand this struggle, we have to be on this journey with this individual. 
So when you're creating the royal environment of the crown, there are all these incredible sets and grand locations that we've heard a lot about on this podcast. But for creating Fagin's World, which is, of course, very different, you filmed on an actual house and estate. Was that important to have an authenticity to that world and to his world? Yeah, very much so. You have the luxury to build sets on the crown, as you know, if that's what's required. But the very first decision I think we made about Fagin's world was that we don't want to build. We don't want to build a flat for Michael Fagin. There's something about let's find a real place in terms of just authenticity. Mm-hmm be truthful, find an estate, find a flat and let's go there and film it. And you just know somehow, even though Martin Charles would build a brilliant set, he would be the first to say, let's go and find the real thing. There's something, there's a sort of indefinable quality about that, that when you're there, it's in the fabric of the walls. Mm. It's the views that you see out of the window. It was interesting. What I was looking for was to find an estate on that sort of scale where all the horizons were concrete blocks. Yeah. Whether you're out on the walkways of the estate or whether you're inside the flat, there is an estate in South London that we filmed on. And interestingly, for me, there's something about Fagin's story that still has a very contemporary relevance. I think it's as relevant now as Mm. it was in 1982. Yeah. This feels like this guy could have come out and gone over the palace walls in the here and now for similar reasons. Yeah. So we found this estate and they were very incredibly welcoming to us. Interestingly, the only thing we had to change about the estate was in visual effects. We had to remove satellite dishes (laughs) from the facade. But other than that... It hasn't changed in 40 years. We spent a lot of time on that estate and we found a flat. And so it was vitally important to get the texture, the fabric, Mm. the feel of that world right and real. That world is still still there. It's bonkers to think, though, isn't it, that he was actually able to to break into the palace on... Yeah. Two occasions? Two occasions. If it weren't true, you just would never believe <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, if you wrote it as a piece yeah, yeah. of fiction. Yeah, that would never happen. Yeah, totally. It's, it's nuts. And when you look at the detail of how he got in and how he went undetected, it's gobsmacking. When we were shooting it and when we were planning it, I was thinking, is this going to look too easy? <laughs> <laughs> but but it was that easy. And, <laughs> he yeah, gets off the bus, yeah, he hops over yeah. the fence. Ten minutes later, he's in her bedroom. There's a little bottle of wine on the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Again, all true. You know. It's again how the tone is just dealt with to precision. Like after the first break in when he has the bottle of wine mm. and Philip mm. makes that comment about him you know, having the... Yeah. And it's just, there's these little reliefs of yeah. tiny little bits of dialogue that just allow you to take a breath. Again, and so again, clever. very human. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, I, and I think that it just makes all the characters so accessible. The cumulative effect of those small moments is that it just grounds the whole piece, mm. I feel. Yeah. It, it just makes you feel an authenticity and a truth and an honesty about everything. Did she ever talk about it? No. And that's what's interesting, again, about, of course, what Peter takes this character and there's an imagination about this story now, about how he wants to use this character. But Michael Fagin has told his story, obviously, numerous times. Sometimes the story differs. It's not always consistent. And then the only other person who knows what happened in that room that morning has never, ever spoken about it. I love the way Olivia plays it. I think it's just... Yeah. 
Like you say, there's a human, there's a real There's a human, human. and there is a connection. Yeah. They really make a connection at the end. And she plays it so skillfully, as she always does. But, of course, underlying for Elizabeth in that scene, there's an intruder in her room, and this could go very wrong. And so there's a fear and there's a terror in that situation mm. that she has to overcome and she has to try and control it and she tries to try and control him and take control of this situation. And in doing so, then she makes a connection with him and it ends with something quite profound and a personal connection like of which I don't think she's ever had before. Mm. Last time was you too. Yeah. What is the matter with you? This is private property. No, it's not estate property. Either way, you're trespassing. Which isn't a crime. Not if I don't steal anything. You stole a bottle of wine last time. Only to work up the courage to speak to you. Because I've tried everything else. Writing letters. Speaking to my MP. Fat lot of good any of that did. Mirage of democracy. So, I've come to you, the head of state, you're my last resort. Someone who can actually do something. What is it you'd like me to do? Save us all from her. Now you've got Tom Brook playing Michael Fagan. I've got to say his performance is absolutely fantastic. And I wondered what conversations you had with him about preparing for the character and the complexities, especially for that two-header with Olivia when he finally does get in and speak to the Queen. Tom's a very, very clever actor and we talked that actually Michael's needs and objectives are, are simple ones. Actually, he starts out, his journey starts out with, yes, he wants a job, but actually first and foremost on his mind is that he needs money to fix a leaking pipe in his flat, which in turn will allow his children to visit the flat because mm. he's been told his children can't visit the flat until he fixes it up. So they're very simple needs. Mm. And he's a working man who wants to work and wants to support his family. So we talked about the simplicity of those needs and the frustration and the depression that comes along with that when the system is against you. And He's a very intuitive actor, Tom, a very intelligent... We, all, we talked a lot about Michael might not be an educated individual, but he is a very intelligent mm -hmm. man. And he understands his predicament in a wider sense. He understands what's doing this to him about what political agenda has put him in this place. And he gets to the heart of that. And so when it comes to that scene, he comes with a message. He knows what he's got to say. But then when he's in the moment and he's confronted there, that doesn't happen easily. He has to calm himself down. He has to try and calm her down. Mm. There's a really interesting shape to that scene that's maybe 10, 12 minutes long that they both kind of have to feel their way with it. And then he comes to the point where actually he starts opening up and he starts confessing and, and he makes his political point, but then he opens up about the fact that he's now been, they're saying, I've got mental health issues, he says, and he's open about that. And that raw emotion yeah. opens him up for her somehow makes him less of a threat or it gives her an opportunity to then take control of the situation and to connect with him. When you've been in my position, as long as I have, you see how quickly and how often a nation's fortunes can change. 
joblessness, recession, crises, war, all of these things have a way of correcting themselves. Countries bounce back. People do. Because they simply have to. That's what I thought, that I'd bounce back. And then I didn't. First the work dried up, then my confidence dried up. Then the love in my wife's eyes dried up. And then you begin to wonder, you know, where's it gone? Not just your confidence or your happiness, but your... They say I have mental health problems now. I don't, I'm just poor. In my head, a lot of that conversation would take place on the bed because that's the image we have of that scene when we think back and we, we, we read about it. Peter was there on set that day and he was interested in exploring a bit more movement with it, so we kind of threw that over to Tom and Olivia and it organically found its shape in mm. a way. It's Once like he, a dance. Yeah, very much so. And he's kind of prowling round to a degree and she's very cautious of having this kind of cornered animal in the room. But then Tom very naturally found his way to a chair. This wasn't planned, this just happened in rehearsal, found his way to a chair in the middle of the room and very naturally sat down in there and that was the moment he it felt natural for him to make the confession about his mental health issues. And at that point, Olivia instinctively makes a move to go and sit with him. Again, all happened very intuitively in the moment. And what we saw coming together, which was quite brilliant, that once they're in these two chairs, we're looking at it and we think, oh, we've got an audience scene. Absolutely. I was just you know? about to say it's the most human audience she's ever had from exactly. all those audiences. Exactly. And so we've got the image then of the Queen. She's there in a nighty and her dressing gown <laughs> and he's in his greasy old Parker. But they are, it's an audience scene. And that happened incredibly naturally wow. and organically. And then she's having a conversation, the like of which I, I think she's never had before. Uh, he makes the point earlier that you don't really meet real people. Yes, you meet real people, but everybody's been vetted and everybody knows they're meeting the Queen and everybody's on best behaviour. Mm -hmm. But I'm here to tell you who I am, how I feel and how it is out there. And it's incredibly powerful. Peter was there on the day. He added a line on the day wow. towards the end of the exchange between them. And the maids come in and the maids now running for security. Yeah. And Peter said to Oliver, ask him if he wants he wants to ask you anything else. So he added this line, is there anything else you'd like to tell me? And in that moment, the way Tom reacted to that, that was Fagin realising she's listened, she's heard, she understands. And the way, the space the two of them give mm. around those couple of lines, for me, is the most powerful, profound moment in a way, because that's where the, the connection is. And it's quite beautiful. Are you all right, ma'am? Yes, quite all right, thank you. But you might ask the policeman to come. Have you come far? York Way. Just beyond King's Cross. Lovely. 
Is it lovely? No, not particularly. Is there anything else you'd like to say to me? No. Thank you. I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Jonathan Wilson, Major David Rankin-Hunt, and Paul Whittington. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else, in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode six of season four of The Crown, called Terra Nullius. Charles and Diana's marriage is on the rocks, but can a royal tour of Australia free from Camilla's influence, rekindle their romance and win over the Australian public. Which is why the two of you are perfect for each other. So where do I fit in? You fit in because you're my wife. And... Because... I love you. I do. I do. Gosh. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>